All right. Well, thank you all for, for coming today. Um, preaching on a, on, a, on a short notice, um, but it's the, the Lord's Word, and there is always plenty to, to glean from it. Um, we'll take a, a, just, a, I guess, a brief um, break from the book of Mark. And what I want you to do is, if you'll please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we'll we'll pray for illumination here shortly. I just real quick little introduction here. So um, our passage today is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So this letter was written by the Apostle Paul from prison in Rome. Um, and it was he wrote this letter at the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Philippians. Now, being the the strong the strong reformed folks uh, that you are, I'm sure that you're all very very familiar with this book. Um, and I'd be willing to guess that probably many of you this might even be one of your favorites. I know it, it certainly is mine. Um, just a couple things quickly. So, an old Italian reformer uh, who is one generation removed from Calvin and Luther said of this book, he, his name was uh, Girolamo Zanchi, and he says of this epistle, this epistle that it is the epitome of the whole Christian doctrine. It is literally the epitome of the entire Christian doctrine in one letter, uh, and he couldn't be uh, more correctly or more correct. And you know, the the Apostle Paul, when he when he writes from prison, there tends to be a, a savor and and a, and a relish about. Uh, the things of God in it. it it's a, it's a, you can tell it's coming from a, a, a very broken but sweet place in his communion with God. Uh, so, but that's how the Holy Spirit is, right? Like when we're at our most broken or our most vulnerable uh, is when our communion with him is the sweetest and when, um, when our heart sings the most towards him. It's, it's almost like he designed it that way, right? Um, but anyway, so let's, uh, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask him for help, and then we will, we will begin our, our passage today. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, right now, God, we ask you, Lord, um, be your will. Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, we ask that you would enlighten us today, that you would enlighten our hearts as we'll read here shortly. God, that you would, uh, that you would be with us, that you would help me. Uh, that you would get me out of the way, Lord, and that all that your people would be receiving is your word through your Holy Spirit alone, um, and that you would receive all glory and all honor and all praise. God, be with us. Have mercy on us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, I'm going to go ahead and read. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 23, and we will proceed from that point. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Follow along with me. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all, all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. That doesn't get your, your uh, spiritual blood pumping, man. You know, this, this book is, is full, full of this. So um, the first thing that I want to call your attention to is we're going to get what Paul is doing here in verses 16 and 17. So if you look at verse, six, verse 16, it says, he does, not give, he does not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in his prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. What we're seeing here in this, in this passage of scripture is thankfulness, right? We see thanksgiving by Paul towards God for these Ephesian people. And he's making intercession for them. He's about to start praying for them, or at least let them know what he prays for them, right? So we have thanksgiving and we have intercession. But if you'll notice at the very, very beginning of verse 15, it says, for this reason too. And we know typically when there is a for this reason or a therefore, we need to figure out what the therefore is there for, right? We need to go back and see what the point is prior to this. And um, uh, so I, let's go ahead. I want, I want to start reading in verse 3, and we're going to read through verse 6. I'll just kind of summarize this after we read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now you're going to see what the root is, or at least what the foundation is for how he begins this letter. Okay, so um, he, he begins praising God who has given, right, past tense. This is something that's happened. Uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, And in his infinite love and wisdom and goodness, he chose a specific people uh, before the foundation of the world and predestines them to adoption. Right? We talked about adoption a little bit in our catechism today. Um, what is this saying? He's acknowledging God as the sovereign in salvation. God alone is the sovereign. He is the, the ruler of the one who is in complete control of salvation. Uh, this is what I have written down. If we want to get this, if we want to make a little list here, so he is the author of salvation. He is the means of salvation. He is the maintainer of salvation. He is the finisher of salvation, and he is the reward of salvation. He is totally sovereign over all things pertaining to salvation. And verse six tells us for what or why. For the great, for the, for the praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He is completely in control of salvation to the glory of his grace. That's why he does this. Now, uh, in verse 7, we find that through the glory of this, this grace that he freely gives his people, that we have redemption through his blood and for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay? And it says that the riches of his grace is lavished on us. 
That's very, um, that language, it, it means to exceedingly, without measure. He lavishes this grace on us. Now, I want you to go down, let's go down to verse 11, so we can get a little bit more understanding of, of what this, for this reason too is. So in verse 11, it says, we have obtained an inheritance. That's a very, very important word. Now, that word specifically is going to be the base for verses 11 through uh, 14. It is, it is based around this inheritance in God. Well, what is the inheritance? We'll get to that just a little bit later. Um, uh, the, actually, I'll just I'll kind of summarize it really quickly. So we have a future hope, right? The, the inheritance that we have is the future hope, what we will have when Christ returns, um, uh, the promise of, of eternal life, which we have that promise now, but will be realized later on down the road. And namely, our inheritance is God himself is God himself. He is the ultimate inheritance uh, that's being spoken about here. And it is, it is all of these things combined that is for this reason too that he begins with in verse 15. So for this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. God is this, it, God is so glorious in his mercy and in, his, in the gifts that he gives his people. In his infinite love and wisdom, he predestined us before the foundation of the world and freely pours out these things on his people. And for this reason too, right? Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and love for all the saints. So he, does, he never stops uh, thanks, giving thanks and making mention of them in his prayers. Now, this is a common theme that we see throughout uh, Paul's letters, right? If we were to go, let's say, because I told you that Colossians was written the same time as Ephesians, if we were to go into chapter 1 of Colossians and look at verse 3 and 4, we would see Paul actually says the same thing. He actually says, he mentions having heard of their faith and that he rejoices in their faith. And this can be a very, very simple, a very easy thing to just gloss over, right? Because Paul seems in every one of his epistles he makes some type of mention of not not being able to wait to go back to these people. He's praying to the Lord that he'll be able to return to them or that he hears about them and that he's rejoicing in this. It's so easy just to gloss over that and get to the to the meat and the potatoes, but there this is significant. It is a significant point. So, in Acts chapter 19, we have to understand that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Eight to ten years prior to this is his first arrival into Ephesus. Like I said, we get this from Acts chapter 19, right? So when he arrives in Ephesus, as we get from that, uh, from that passage of Scripture, he arrives and there's already disciples there. There's already believers there. Some work had been done and there were people that were believing in God. And he asked them, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the people in Ephesus say, we don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. Like, we don't even know what that is. So what he does is, is he goes and he lays hands on them. He lays hands on them, and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he begins what turns out to be a three-year period where he is discipling these people. He is preaching in the synagogues. He, they go to a school of a man named Tyrannus, and, and that's where he begins teaching these people, discipling them, bringing them up. And uh, before too long, the church starts to boom. Uh, they're preaching the gospel everywhere. There's people coming to Christ. And um, um, when we realize that, that this is eight to ten years prior, that kind of gives us some context for the kind of praise that Paul would have towards God for hearing that these people are still growing in the faith. 
These people are still, these people still belong to Christ, and they still love one another. Now, um, if you think about this, like let's let's try to to put this in our in our own context. Okay, I want you to think about maybe somebody. Uh, let's well, a hypothetical situation where you share the gospel with somebody ten years ago. Say say it's a coworker, for example, and this person winds up responding to the gospel. Lord um, moves on them, and they wind up responding to the gospel, and they begin to come to church, and we you begin fellowshipping with them, and as time goes on, they begin to grow, and they are more interested in the things of God, and you are discipling them, and working through their life with them, right? And, and it becomes this, this relationship over the period of three years, and then you go away, Okay? Ten years later, down the road, you, you hear in a phone conversation or something, it's like, hey, you remember so-and-so? Um, they are more on fire for Jesus today than they were whenever you left. They are more on fire for Jesus today than before you left. And not only that, they, you should see their love that they have for one another, for the saints, doing exactly what we're called to do, particularly in the book of 1 John, right? We're to love one another. Jesus, one of Jesus' commandments, the whole fulfilling the whole second part of the law, loving one another as you love yourself. This guy, this guy is just, he's, he's on fire, he's been on fire. And imagine you being in prison when you hear that. Right? How faithful is God? In his infinite love, he predestined, of course this person is going to continue on, because God's work is that effectual, Praise be to his name. Praise be to the glory of his grace. That is the spirit that Paul is writing this letter in. Okay? To give you an idea of what's taking place here. Now, I want you to think about it in our time. Just the fact that a church still exists in Ephesus alone, just that point by itself, is a, is a testament to the goodness of God. Okay? I want you to think about this today. How difficult it would be to maintain this if God was not the sovereign over salvation. If he was not the sovereign over salvation, if I left, if, if my family was converted and I left for 10 years and their salvation was up to them, it would be impossible to remain saved. Impossible. There is debauchery and depravity and sin on every single street corner. And we live in the Bible Belt, by the way, right? You, you go down the road and there is every snare and pitfall that goes on in, this, in kids' schools and everywhere else, every reason to fall away, how exactly is a Christian able to maintain their walk with Christ in the civilization that we live in today? It's baffling. It's impossible. And it's the same with Paul in this day. It's the same thing. Maybe different sins, maybe different modes to sin, maybe different access to sin, but it's the same thing. So I had mentioned before in Acts chapter 19 that after these people had come and they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, they did something very, very specific. What they did was, is they took, keep in mind, Ephesus was a very pagan place. Uh, every, there was a, they, they worshipped a pantheon of gods, and most of it was divination and magic books. Like, all these people come with their idols and their magic books, and they put it all in a pile, and they set the whole thing on fire. Well, just because they burned their magic books doesn't mean that everybody else burned theirs. And just because they burned their little idols didn't mean that a a temple to the Greek god Artemis, that, that didn't get burned down right away either. Everybody that they dealt with in their life apart from each other was still a pagan 
who was given over into their life of sin. And they had to navigate their walk with Christ in the midst of that. How is that any different than what we deal with today? Right? So we find out 10 years later that not only is that church thriving, it's continuing to grow and continuing to build. Praise be to God. Right? He is the one who's in control of it. If he wasn't, this would not be, this would not be a, a part of the, of the conversation at all. So let's, I want to look at verse 17 and 18, and I want to see uh, the, the, the two things that Paul is going to say um, after uh, realizing this, giving thanks to God. Um, he begins to pray for something very specific. And I hit this a little bit last time when we were talking about Second uh, uh, Peter. So um, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and go, go through it. So verse uh, 16 and 17, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. So he's praying for something very specific. He's praying for a spirit of wisdom, that they would have the spirit of wisdom that leads to the knowledge of him. Well, where do we get our definition for the word wisdom? Because there's lots of different kinds of wisdom out there, right? We're talking specifically about God's wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is where wisdom begins, is with the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so, let's, I want, if you will, in your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of James. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 1. We know that wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. And James says something specific about wisdom. And we're in, I think in this right here, in this little passage of Scripture, we are going to find what the context is for Paul when he's writing to the Ephesians. Okay, So I'm going to go ahead and read verse 6. It says, I'm sorry, I'll, start, I'll do 5 and 6. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Well, we have to ask ourselves, okay, so this is so wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, and this is something that we need to come to God and ask him for. Okay? Well, what is the context that James is writing? that these people might need wisdom. Let's read, verse, uh, let's read verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Wisdom in trials. Right? So, I'll get to, I'll get to what, what, what Paul is saying here. But guys, we as God's people... We and they, the Ephesian people, the people that even the people that James is talking to, we desperately, desperately, desperately need God's wisdom when it comes to all things, but specifically in our trials. Specifically in our trials. Now, when in, in the weakness of our in the weakness of our, our, our flesh, 
You know, we have, we have these times where, where we can read the Word of God and there is so much wisdom that we can glean from in the Word of God. There are so many things that we can, that we can gather and, um, and apply to our lives in the midst of certain situations. But there is something to be said about the experiential suffering and the kind of wisdom that that brings. Now, the Word of God helps us. We put it on our heart, and we know how to rightly interpret situations, and that is wisdom. But I'm talking about the one who finds themselves in the thick of it, like in in the middle of something that they can't simply just go and walk away from. The the one thing that happens where you're like, God, this this is the thing that breaks you down to your knees and tests every single fiber of your being. For those situations, we need wisdom. For, to the biggest things, to the smallest things. I think I used the example one time. I, I need wisdom when I lose my keys because I start to freak out, right, and, and, start, and start losing my mind over something small as that. Well, how much more wisdom do I need when I find out I get this diagnosis? Or I find out that this person is no longer on the planet who I'm closer to, that's one of the closest people in the world to me. How is it that I'm going to deal with that when I can't just make that go away? Right? We need the wisdom of God. Um, I want to give you a, a, a little example, just kind of the, the, the need for wisdom and the wisdom that we can get, that we do get from God's word, because this is God's word to us. The, the, the Bible is God's word to us. But uh, a few weeks ago, I had received a, um, a, a phone call in the middle of the night by an angry, um, we'll just say non-Christian, who was very, very upset with me for... Uh, a quote that was put in a, in a paper about um, the, the pro-life efforts that we have, that we've been participating in here as a church. And in this voicemail, he stated my phone number, and he also told me what my address was, which was a little unnerving, right, at the time. This all took place at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when I got this message, I immediately respond in the flesh, right? So isn't, that's, that's typically our response. Our initial response is, I wish he would. You know what I mean? Like, I wish this dude would come over, or I'm going to find out who this person is, or I start going into all these things in the flesh. But, but really, the Word of God starts to set in, the Word of God that we have. And, and it, it, this was not my first response. This is purely God's grace. But it becomes... This person doesn't know God, more than likely. I'd be willing to bet. He's acting like a person that doesn't know God. He's not doing anything less. He's not doing anything more. He is simply marching to the tune of his nature. Just like I used to when I was lost. It's the kind of thing that I would have done. Jesus actually calls for me to bless my enemies. And to pray for my enemies. And how about instead of and, and there are places for the imprecatory psalms where we pray that God would break people's teeth and things like that, right? We talked a little bit about that at our prayer meeting. But in this circumstance, what about praying that God would give me the opportunity to face this guy and to actually give him the gospel? To give him the message that would set his soul free, right? Should God decide to act on that? What about that? That is a certain wisdom that can, that can come from Scripture, right, that we have when we, we put it on our heart. So we, we do need to know, um, um, we do need to, to read the Word and put it on our hearts. But more specifically, and uh, what I'm talking about here, is, is this, the one thing that you can't breeze through. Because what wound up happening with my little situation was absolutely nothing. 
There was no other phone calls. Nobody did anything. Nobody's going to do anything. It's, it was, it was a, a dumb thing that I you know, just responded to. But I'm talking about the things that won't just go away, right? So um, let's say you, you get that diagnosis and then you wind up coming to your pastor. Let's say you wind up coming to Ryan or you wind up coming and you say, you know, I'm dealing with this thing and it's, it's so big and I'm in pain and I'm hurting and you get the greatest yet sometimes falls flat response from any Christian you go to whenever you're bringing up a problem like this. And what is it? Amen. God is sovereign. Right? God is sovereign. It's the greatest response. It really is the greatest response. Paul opens up chapter 1 with that statement. But when you're in the middle of something, it just kind of feels like, okay, well, God is sovereign. I'm still hurting. Right? Like, this isn't like, like, I get it. He's got his purposes and his, and his plans. And, and we need that wisdom. We need the wisdom where we can take these situations and see them for what they are in a theological sense. But we don't see it the way it is because we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. That's why we can't find joy in trials. Period. Period. Let's go a little bit further. I'm going to get back to all of this. Paul says that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And there's that word again, inheritance. What is his inheritance in the saints? He is... No question talking about suffering. And I'm, I, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate how I know that he's talking about suffering. So quickly, in chapter 2, he, what he d- begins to do is he begins to compare what the, what the believer used to be before God and what they are after, they, after they've been saved, right? It even begins that way. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, right? So in chapter 3, in chapter 3, he begins to go into the mystery of the gospel, Chapter 4, he urges them to walk in unity as new creatures, each one part of the body. Right? He's establishing this argument as he moves through the book of Ephesians. Chapter 5, he commands them to walk in light and to walk in love. He gives instructions for our most basic relationships, marriages, how a husband is to be with his wife and how a wife is to be with her husband. Then he goes into the children, how children are supposed to be with their parents and parents to the children. Then he goes into bond servants and masters, how they are to be with one another. And then he finishes in chapter 6 with the little thing that we can all go into a Christian bookstore and buy and like put on our desk. He, be, he ends with the suit of armor, right? The armor of God that we are to put on, right? We have the, the helmet of salvation and the, and the foot shottings of, of the gospel, the shield of faith, all of these different things that we are supposed to put on. What do people put armor on for? It's not tea parties. That's not what we put armor on for. Although, one guy at the Lubbock Church today did say he may wear armor to a tea party, but that is completely, that's completely separate from this. He did say that. But we don't put on armor for tea parties. We put it on for war. That is what the Christian is supposed to don, what is, they are supposed to put on themselves. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, it says it's to stand up to the schemes of the devil, and particularly the shield of faith, that uh, is to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. 
when we are standing up to the schemes of the devil and we are setting aside the fiery darts of the evil one, that comes with suffering and it comes with struggling and it comes with difficulties. But how do we know that if we don't have wisdom? How do we know that if in the midst of things we forget who our God is? Because that's ultimately what winds up happening. We wind up forgetting who God, who God is. We can be so weak. We can be so weak as God's people when we do not have a proper view of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. Where the Holy Spirit indwells his people. And what Paul is calling these people to is that they would have a knowledge of God through a spirit of wisdom. We talked about inheritance. Uh, We talked about um, inheritance. And uh, actually, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read. I'm going to read real quick uh, verses 18 through 23. Sorry. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Guys, this flows perfectly with the inheritance. Remember, I said that the inheritance is God himself. And we receive God himself at the moment of salvation. So when he is telling them what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, if you are a believer in Christ today, that means you have power. Real power. It's not just, and I'm not talking about like the charismatic power where you manifest jets and, and, and raise people from the dead yourself. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about the God-given power through himself, the Holy Spirit that, that is, gives you the ability to put sin to death. That gives you the ability to say no to the things of the world and yes to the things of God. And you know what the evidence of that is, what I'm saying is true, is because you had power in one instance to say yes to him at the moment you were saved. And we know from our study of scripture that we did not have that power prior to knowing God. There is a tremendous amount of power that exists in every single spirit-filled believer, but it's not our power. It's his power. Why don't we live like that? Why don't we live like that? We lack wisdom. We lack the very thing that Paul is asking for, for these people. Do you not recognize, when you read read chapter 1, Man, it's so easy to get emotional, right? To get emotional at what God says about himself through the Apostle Paul here. You read chapter 1, and man, you feel like you're ready to take over the entire world, and then the trial comes, and it's like, never ever even read it. Never even read it. No wonder we get our butts whipped by sin all the time. 
No wonder we fall prey to our, 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 our sin. No wonder we, we lose hearts when times get really hard. But because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, because of the fact that he cannot lie in, in, in his promises, and that he's faithful to his covenant children, he brings us back and we continue to persevere and we continue to grow, right? The, the beautiful thing about this passage in Ephesians is that he's talking about something that's already been done. You've already been given every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've already been given all these things. Christ has lavished them out upon you. And he's continuing to lavish them out upon you, even to this very day. But we need to grow in that. And he does it with trials. That's how he does it. By withstanding the schemes of the evil one. By turning away the fiery darts of the evil one. By putting on the armor, both for our own inner man, because we do war with ourselves. That's what he says in the book of Romans, right? We're constantly at war. We're tugging back and forth, doing the things that I don't want to do, and doing the things that I don't want to do. But understanding that our salvation does not come from any other area other than Christ Jesus alone. And because he is God in the flesh, his promises are effectual, and you will conquer your sin. Not perfectly in this life, I'm not saying that. But you have God's power in you to put sin to death. You have God's power in you to persevere through any trial. Do you not recognize that, Christian? Because we act like we don't. I act like I don't. Well, sin has really been, man, I just am having a hard time Breaking the sin. I always go to God for the exact same thing over and over. Every single time I pray, I feel like I'm asking for forgiveness for the exact same thing. Do you not realize, Eric, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world? That this is something that you possess? Paul is not talking to these Christians in Ephesus about something that they need to get. He's telling them about something that they already have in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And my call today in this is that we would live like that. That we would live in the face of our trials like that. Because of who God is. Because of who God is. When, when, uh, when we talk about his power, when we talk about his strength in the midst of all these things, I want to show you how I know that he is our inheritance. Remember I told you that word inheritance is very, very important. I'm going to show you how I know that he is our inheritance because we can go a lot of different directions than that. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Let's flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. portion of this scripture is where God is... is telling everyone when they're, he, they, they go and they start dividing up the promised land as you know, the Israelites are, are, are uh, preparing to go in and take over the, uh, the promised land and they are to give each section of land to each individual tribe. Listen to what he says to the Levites. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Levitical priest, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. 
They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. We are today, as the spiritual Israelite, we are a priesthood in his church. And he has been set as the high priest over the priesthood of his church. He is our inheritance. This is why Paul, when, he, when, he, when he's talking about in the, in the book of Philippians, that he's, he's learned to be content with much, and he's learned to be content with very little, that because the Lord is our inheritance. He's writing from this in prison. He has nothing. The only things that Paul has are stuff that his brothers and sisters in Christ bring to him while he's in prison. He has absolutely nothing. God alone is his inheritance, and this is the joy. When we look at Ephesians, this is a, it, it, he's writing it from a place of absolute sheer joy because God has been faithful to the people, to the church that he participated in planting. And he gives the reason why. He gives the reason why. Let's, let's go back over to the book of Ephesians. Let's go back over to the book of Ephesians, and I want to read why. Why he's so joyful. Because he understands who the Lord is. He understands who the inheritance is. I'm just going to read out the rest of this. He says, I'll start in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When we read Psalm 110, and we see that, that my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Everything has been put into subjection under his feet, including our trials. Including our trials. All things. This is the one true living God who has set his love upon you, Christian, not because you were strong, not because you were smart, not because you were greater in number, but he set his love upon you because he loves you. And he has made promises concerning you. And nothing that you go through in this life is apart from his sovereign control. It is for your good, and it is for his glory. To whatever end. Whether it's death, whether it's not. We serve a powerful and almighty God who is most wise. Right? We can go back through the catechism. Most wise. Most just. All of those things. And I think sometimes we can get so, we can get wrapped up you know, when we're, we're, we're preaching the, the full counsel of God and we're looking at his, the wrath that he has towards sin because he is just and the wrath that he has towards sinners because he is just. And sometimes we can, gra- we can graze over the love. Do you, you realize that he has loved you with an everlasting love? 
Before the foundation of the world, he chose his people and he predestined them in love, it says. In love, he predestined them. That there is not a moment that goes through your life that he's not in complete control over. The wisdom is when we understand who God is, we will understand the hope of his calling. And the promises aren't even done yet. He promises us eternal life. He promises us space within his kingdom that there are that his that his home is a mansion and there are rooms prepared for his people. We're never alone, we're never broken, we're never defeated, but you might but but you know, it's just this thing where we, where we, then we go home and, you know, you hear a sermon like this or whatever, you go home and you're like, okay, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Like, I'm going to go, I, I can take on anything. And then I look in the mirror and be like, man, I am so weak. Amen. Me too. I am the most base. I am the weakest of heart. But my Bible says, that Christ's power is perfected in weakness. If I was strong, I wouldn't be his child. I wouldn't be his child if I was strong, if I was self-sufficient, if I was independent. But that's where the strength is, is in our weakness. Because who then do we run to? The one who is almighty. Right? He does not cease giving thanks for them while making mention of them in his prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. If you are going through trials, he's giving you wisdom. It never says that him giving wisdom is painless. A lot of times it's the opposite. But we recognize that in our times of pain, much like Paul when he's writing this letter, where's he writing this letter from? It's important to remember the context. Prison. Right? And he writes the sweetest, most God-glorifying things about his creator when he's in the most suffer, he's suffering more in this place than he had previous to this. That's wisdom when we understand who God is. And that's what I'm calling you to today. That's what I'm calling myself to today. We could all do better in this regard. Right? So that's, uh, that's all I have today. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we call, we call on you for help. Lord, we are so limited in our, in our ability. We are so limited in, in our desires. We get so weak and we, we waver and and we, we grow angry and we grow cold and we, 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 we move around. We're tossed back and forth like, like waves in the ocean, God. Steady us. Give us wisdom, Lord. We ask you, we beseech you, Lord, this day for wisdom. Help us to know. Help us to, to, to hide the knowledge of you, the knowledge of you that we profess to have. Hide that away in our hearts, God. Let that be our rock that we go through life in, where we have a a house that's built on the rock and not on sand, Lord. Why do we always go towards the sand? What hope do we have apart from Jesus? What hope do we have apart from the Holy Spirit that, that you have given to us, our inheritance that you lavish your mercies through? God, you you are so, so good. There are no strong men of God. There are only weak and and 
pitiful men of a great and holy and righteous and almighty God. And we confess that to you today, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would be with your people as we continue to go out throughout the rest of our week, Lord. Be with us. Help us in this walk of life that you have us in. We love you, God, and we need you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.